The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, a wake-up call for the market. That's the message tonight from Peter Bookfar as traders digest today's Fed decision. We'll break down all the market fallout straight ahead. Plus, charged up. Shares of GM zooming higher as the company doubles down on its EV ambitions. But the company's CEO told CNBC today that has investors plugging into the stock. And later, break out the sunscreen and pour yourself a Mai Tai. We're setting sail on the cruise lines. Is it time to book yourself a ticket on this trade? We're hitting the high seas, and that is coming up later. But we're going to start with that major shift from the Fed. The central bank signaling it's finally getting ready to raise rates again. The new sending yields on U.S. Treasuries sharply higher. Elon Moy has got all the details. She was there and listening in today. Hi, Elon. Well, Courtney, as Fed Chair Jay Powell put it, this was the talking about talking about tapering meeting. That means no timeline yet for when the Fed might start reducing its asset purchases. But Powell promised it would be orderly, methodical and transparent when it does happen. And he said the metric of making substantial progress in the recovery remains the same. Participants expect continued progress uh, ahead toward that objective. And assuming that is the case, it will be appropriate to consider announcing a plan for reducing our asset purchases at a future meeting. So at coming meetings, the committee will continue to assess the economy's progress toward our goals and will give advance notice before announcing any decision. Now, Powell also explicitly acknowledged that higher inflation is a risk. The Fed raised its forecast for the year from 2.4 to 3.4 percent, though it does moderate back down to 2.1 percent next year. We are also seeing upward pressure on prices from the rebound in spending as the economy continues to reopen, particularly as supply bottlenecks have limited how quickly production in some sectors can respond in the near term. These bottleneck effects have been larger than anticipated. Now, Powell emphasized that the central bank would not hesitate to use all of its tools if inflation does rise more persistently, but he's humble about the ability to accurately forecast during a crisis. And he warned there's also risks surrounding variants and vaccination levels. And he said he's not declaring victory just yet. Courtney. Elon, thank you very much for breaking that all down for us. We're going to go ahead and trade this one. Steve, I'm going to start with you. I think you have some interesting thoughts about inflation, and you actually are seeing pockets of deflation. So, I mean, if you look at if you look at the ten year, if you look at break evens, if you look at a host of other signals. Now, I get it. We went from fifty bips to one point seven four percent in the ten year, but we're backing off that. Should we be at two, two and a half, three for everything we hear? I don't know. Shouldn't break-evens be worse? So Chairman Powell talked about supply chain disruptions. Right. Those are freeing up. Mailbox money is probably coming to an end at a certain point. You would think it's coming to an end. I think we're in a deflationary spiral. Spiral. Whoa. So what? I mean, <laughs> well, 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 wait, 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 let, me, let me just finish it before you rip it apart. Okay. So I, I think, never rip I think, it apart. No. 
I think we entered the pandemic in a deflationary environment, and I think that could have been the spiral. Now we're flattening out, and that's the reason why we're not seeing spikes in well, inflation. Well, there's no question that, that, look, the Fed acted quickly and, and ex- with extreme force, um, along with then monetary policy was then fiscal policy, and, and here we are. Um, Note, you know, we, we spent so much time in the last month talking about the word and defining the word or understanding the word transitory and persistent actually popped up there, too, on the opposite side of, hey, you know, possibly there could be a little bit more stubborn inflation there. Um, the things I, I focused on were, were that he was still focused on a very uneven labor market. And I think that that's really where the Fed is hanging its hat right now to be able to lay back. And, and there's reasons why I think the labor market is uneven. And it may be that there's a lot of folks that aren't necessarily running to go back to work. But um, the, the things that are the most important about today were you went from four to seven Fed members that are actually expecting a hike in 2023 uh, and, all, and, 20, and, and all of them out the, the following year. They clearly upgraded their inflation forecast. And guess what? I think this was a day where the Fed gained back some credibility from the market. I, I know that's not necessarily what a lot of people will say is their takeaway, but how could they not have sent that signal that shot across the bow that, yes, we will at some point be in a place and and whether it's the dot plots or whether it's actually what happened to the short end of the curve, the market heard from the Fed that they're not asleep at the switch and that they actually could make a reaction at some point. BK, what do you think? There was a lot there that we could talk about. Do you want to talk about the employment picture? (laughs) You want to talk about inflation? What did you take away from Powell today? Well, I, I think what you need to do is just look at what the market did, right? So we had yields going higher, but yields on the front end of the curve. So two-year yields, five-year yields, where 30-year yields didn't uh, move that much. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the market is starting to price in a rate hike and that the rate hike may be a little bit more aggressive than we thought yesterday. Uh, but the dollar moving higher, now that's a drag on commodities, which actually, whether the Fed intended or not, can make this a transitory blip in inflation. So you could see commodity prices come down. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say a deflationary spiral yet, but let's call it non-inflationary. Um, and, and so I think surprisingly, and I don't know if J- J- uh, Jay Powell wanted to do this, but he actually did what he needed to accomplish. He, he needed to cool down that inflation narrative, which he's done. Now, the question is, how much damage does he do, do to the stock market? That we're going to find out over the next week or so. Guy, do you think he cooled down the inflation market, even if he took the expectation from 2.4% to 3.4%? Yeah, I, I don't. And, and you know, I, I, this is a great conversation. I mean, I understand what Steve is saying. I think we all would agree that the greatest deflationary force in the history of mankind has been technology. And the speed with which technology has become such an integral part of our lives over the last 15 months is astonishing. And they can't, they being the Fed, they can't win that battle. There's inflation, in my opinion, in all the wrong places, places that they don't want it. And that's a completely different conversation. I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, Fed Chair Powell said he's not ready to declare victory yet. Thank you very much. That's like getting off to a 3-0 and start in a 162-game season and saying, <laughs> you know, we're not really ready to declare ourselves champions yet, but we're close. It's complete horse hockey, if you will. So my complete <laughs> takeaway from this is I think the commodity trade will continue to work, although it's been derailed over the last couple of weeks. And Tim mentioned this last night. He was not ready to call an end to the bank move. And he's right. I think the banks will get um, their second, third bid on the back of some of these comments today.
Yeah, regional banks moved up nicely. Regional banks. And again, well, the interest rate sensitivity there, I think, is high. And, and we're not in an environment where rates moving higher is a credit issue. Not yet. And, and so um, I, I just, you know, I look at the earnings profile. I look at the operational leverage. I, I look at the correlation to what's going on in the broader economy. And, and yeah, and, you know, it, it's interesting. So Guy pointed out that this wasn't a great day for material stocks. What does that tell you about the messaging? Um, and, and again, the fact that the dollar, the dollar is probably the biggest story of the day in terms of in terms of a relative move to everything. I mean, the dollar rallied almost one percent. And and I don't think that's a function of your weakness. I think it's really a function of, of at least the expectations that the market may begin to price in more of. But but look, everything that we heard today was a an upgraded GDP, a sense that an uneven labor, an uneven labor market Ultimately, they want to get to full employment. You know, that's a case where all the resource trades, all of those reflation trades, uh, I think, are very much still in play. So as much as we've seen a couple of these things pull back. And, yeah. and also, Cora, when you have to juxtapose it with the reopening, as Guy and Tim were just saying, of the economy. So even if rates flatten or come in just a bit, I'm long a, a bunch of value plays, diversified chemical plays. There's going to be a huge reopening bank. So that could um, counteract whatever non-rate spike we do get. Hmm. I want to get to BK really quickly to follow up something also that Tim had brought on when he was talking about the dollar. Because, BK, you had said before Powell spoke and before we got the statement that the Fed needed to thread a very small needle and keep the dollar steady. The dollar was not steady. It spiked higher. So did the yeah. Fed fail? Because earlier you, you said that Jay Powell did what he needed to do. So he did what he needed to do for today. The risk is if you get a much stronger dollar. He did what he didn't need to do today because it kind of put some, it put some water on the coals, right? But the problem you have, if you get a very strong dollar, that is going to slow global growth. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The dollar is the new VIX. It acts as a global wrecking ball. So if you get a dollar that moves much higher and, you know, 1% is a start, if we over the next couple of weeks get a sustained move here, then that will be a problem for the global economy. Now, add into that that we have this kind of tenuous situation where, yeah, people have been able to raise prices, but they're also supply chain constrained. So it doesn't really feel like the economy is growing at the pace that everybody at the pace that the Fed thinks it is. So if that's the case and interest rate goes up and the housing market starts to slump and people all of a sudden aren't uh, being able to earn what they can earn and the dollar goes up and commodities go down. Now I'm adding a lot of things up. Then we get to Grasso's deflationary spiral. So I think it's there. I, 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 I don't I'm going to withdraw what the term saying at all. spiral. Okay. I'm okay. going okay. to withdraw. I'm going to withdraw. Is it too late? Is it too late? I think you're allowed to withdraw it. All right. All retract right. it. Yes. Yeah, yes. retract it. Okay, so we're going to keep the conversation going and bring in Peter Bookbar. He's the CIO of Bleakley Advisor Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, thanks for being here with us. You know, in the notes, I see that you're saying today was a wake-up call when it comes to tapering. Elaborate on that point for us. Well, we, we've seen now peak dovishness within the Fed. Not that they turned hawkish today, far from it, but they're a hair less dovish. They've actually now laid the groundwork for a taper beginning. Uh, I think the July uh, meeting, uh, we're going to get start to get more details. Uh, I don't know how they're going to tie that in with Jackson Hole in August and then the next meeting in September. But the wheels are now in motion. And the runway is getting very short for the Fed to continue to have excuses not to do this. I mean, they have currently emergency policy, policy that was the same a year ago at almost the depths of the shutdown. 
So it is getting more and more difficult for them to substantiate why they're doing what they're doing, particularly as they are. I mean, they, 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 Powell said today we're a ways off from substantial progress, which is complete nonsense, because while they may not reach, they may not be at their maximum employment, I argue we're at maximum employment opportunities with record job openings. We don't have price stability right now. We actually have big time major price instability with the inflation that is currently in the system. So whether it's transitory or not, we have inflation now that is slowing parts of the economy. So it's stagflation and potentially going to inhibit other parts of the economy. That is really a, a, not a good mix. And so going back to the taper point before we circle back to inflation, Powell said they're talking about talking about it. It's like a line from a rom-com or something. I mean, how close do you really think that that is? And to your point, I understand it. Perhaps we perhaps we need it. I mean, it seems a little wild to have a Fed balance sheet the way that it looks with the economic data coming in the way it is and the GDP forecast. But how close really realistically is tapering? Well, essentially, the tapering's begun because he talked about it. And whether they officially announce it in, in July or uh, lead the way in August at Jackson Hole and officially declare it in September, the verbal, the verbal cat is out of the bag. Uh, so we are just now going to begin in terms of the market response. The physical part of the actual taper may not happen until September, but the markets are going to be ahead before the actual start. Peter, I'm not. It's Tim. Uh, Thanks for joining us, as always. I'm not expecting warm and fuzzies here, but didn't the Fed regain a little bit of credibility today? Um, And and then on the other side of that, though, you know, he reiterated their mandate. And I thought he threw a third dynamic in there, which was essentially the the oversight of systemic dynamics for the market, which I would think a guy like you would pick up on as well. Well, in terms of credibility, they were on the cusp of losing it by not acknowledging the reality. So the last meeting was in April, end of April. Since late April, we saw a nine-tenths month over month for a CPI number. The estimate was three-tenths. We saw then the next month a seven-tenths for a CPI number. The estimate was five-tenths. CRB index is up 5%. And we talk about commodity prices. The CRB index is 1% below its highest level since 2015. So yes, some commodity prices have pulled back, but others like oil, are at now at, at, at recent highs. Uh, we've seen the number of job openings go from 7.5 million to 9.3 million since the last Fed meeting. So the Fed is just basically playing catch up. And, and I think within the next couple of months, when we continue to see hot CPI numbers or PCE, however you want to measure inflation, which I think we're going to get, you know, the Fed's going to be mugged by reality in the sense that they think they are still in control of this tightening process. They, they have their plan. They're going to taper along a certain timeline and raise rates along a certain timeline. But if this inflation story is not transitory, the market's going to take control of the tightening process, just as it did the first three months of the year when the 10-year yield went from 90 basis points to almost 180 in a straight line. And the five-year went from 35 basis points to north of 90, almost in a straight line. So, Peter, I, I, I get that where we, we actually came from 50 bips in the 10 year all the way up to, to one and three quarter percent or so. What, what do we watch right now? Where do we say, OK, this is the line in the sand now? Do I watch the two and five year break evens? Do I watch the 10 year? What is your inflation gauge uh, that you watch every morning, every day, every waking moment as an economist? 
So certainly the, the break-evens. And yes, to Tim's point earlier, Powell, at least for today, sort of reigned in uh, the inflation expectations as, as, as break-evens fell. But we have to see how long that lasts, because we can be sure, and the market knows this, that the Fed is going to be glacial in this monetary pullback. They are still going to be way overdoing it for a very long period of time. So yeah, there was a shakeup today, and the dollar had a nice rally. But currency traders know the Fed's not getting ahead of any curve. It's just a matter of how far behind they will be through this tightening process. Peter, before we let you go, you had noted that you think it's pretty unbelievable that the housing market wasn't more of a focus today from Jay Powell. What are you seeing there? Is it worrisome to you? Why did you want Powell to address it? So if there's one area of the U.S. economy that is most sensitive to changes in interest rates and monetary policy, it's housing. And and, and 13 percent year-over-year home price gains is, is a dangerous situation. Yeah, it's great for the homeowner who wants to sell, but it really slows, it, it, it inevitably slows things down because people can't afford it. And at the same time, they're buying $40 billion worth of MBS per month. So that there was not one question on these aggressive home price gains that the Fed is now is pouring oil gas on this fire and to not be asked about it and to say to the camera with a straight face, we still need to do all this QE, we still need to have rates at zero, I, I think is just completely disconnected from any reality. Peter, thank you very much for joining us here today. Peter Bookvar, obviously, we'll have you back as a CNBC contributor in many times to come. All right, let's trade this. BK, haven't heard from you in a little while. want to pick up the thoughts that Peter had there when it comes to interest rates, mortgage rates, and housing. Do you think it should have been addressed, and what could be a trade out of that? Well, right. So one, it should have absolutely be addressed. It's insane that they are actually buying mortgage-backed securities when the housing market is just ripping. That's just insane policy. Um, so, you know, what is the, what, what's, what's the trade-off of that? I think you need to watch the housing stocks, you know. If you're going to get interest rates that rise higher than they are today at a fast pace, you are going to reduce the, the, the housing market. You're going to hurt the housing market. So Peter made a really excellent point that the taper has begun. I think that's probably the takeaway from today. And the market now is going to start pricing in what the market believes is going to be the pace. And that pace will start to hit different parts of the economy. And I think housing is ground zero for that. Guy, I'm going to give you the last word to button up this conversation. No, listen, Steve brought up a great point. You know, why aren't 10-year yields higher, 2%, 2.5%? And Peter sort of addressed it, I'll t- I think, in my opinion, and I'll tell you why, and BK just alluded to it, because they're buying $120 billion worth of stuff. And that's not A to B necessarily, but it's A to B to C to D. And I think one of the many unintended consequences, or maybe intended consequences of the Fed, is they've taken price discovery completely out of the equation. I think you take that 120 billion out each month and you'd have the rates that Steve talked about earlier in the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We're going to wrap that discussion up there. But coming up, trading tensions. President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin going face to face in Geneva. Why our traders are watching this key part of the market following today's high stakes summit. Plus shares of GM driving higher as the company plugs into the EV market. Buckle up because we're diving into that trade next. Don't go anywhere. Fast money back into this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do so you need a business partner just like you 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. President Biden is heading back to Washington at this hour following a high-stakes meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva. Let's get to Eamon Javers, who is live on the ground for us in Geneva tonight. Hi, Eamon. Hi, Courtney. Well, both presidents have now left town, and the big question is, what did they accomplish here in Geneva? A lot of this was sort of the agreeing to continue to talk variety of negotiations, but there were a couple of specifics that they were able to pin down, starting with both countries' ambassadors going back to the capital. So that's one takeaway that was viewed as sort of the bare minimum for a successful uh, summit here in Geneva. Also, uh, they're agreeing to a bilateral st- strategic dialogue. That is, they're going to talk about arms control. That's something that they both committed to. And then consultations on cybersecurity. They're going to talk about cybersecurity. So agreeing to ongoing conversations on both of those. President Biden also gave Vladimir Putin a list of critical infrastructure that's off limits to cyber attacks, he said. And he also said he didn't give Vladimir Putin any direct threats, but he said this. Take a listen. I pointed out to him we have significant cyber capability. And he knows it. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but it's significant. And if, in fact, they violate these basic norms, we will respond. Cyber. He knows. So Biden explaining there that there will be specific outcomes for specific Russian actions if the Russians choose to go down that path. For his part, Vladimir Putin here was quite defensive in responding to every allegation against Russia with another allegation back at the United States. But nonetheless, he said there was a positive spin to the day's events. Here's Putin. In my view, we are acting absolutely appropriately uh, to counter threats that are emerging against us. And I think for the situation to be truly stable, we need to reach an agreement on uh, proper code of uh, proper rules of conduct in all the areas that we talked about: strategic stability, cybersecurity, tackling issues that have to do with regional conflicts. I think that we can reach an agreement on everything. And, Courtney, there was a testy moment at the end of the press conference that President Biden gave. He was asked by a reporter how he can be confident and why he's convinced that Vladimir Putin is going to change his behavior after the summit today. Biden turned around and responded very sharply to that reporter and said, you know, I'm not confident he's going to change his behavior. We can't be sure necessarily he's going to change. He wants to say to the world that he has not been snowed by Vladimir Putin here. He was very angry at that question. So angry, in fact, he later apologized for it. Hmm. Interesting stuff. It's been quite a full day for you, Eamon. Thank you. 
We'll have full coverage of the Biden-Putin summit coming up on the news with Shepard Smith at 7 p.m. Eastern time tonight. But let's get back to the task at hand and trade this. Tim, you lived in Russia for a while. You follow this closely beyond the geopolitics of it all. What did you take away from the news today and how it informs your yeah, trading decisions? The one sentence on geopolitics is that di- diplomatic channels need to be open between Russia. Silence and distance is the worst thing that can happen to both countries. And, you know, this was a start. Um, look, I think the most important Russia dynamic right now is one where if you think about the, the, the move in oil and the stability in the oil market, a lot of this has come with the OPEC plus uh, informal and you know, possibly more formality agreement between Saudi and, and Russia and the, the non-OPEC producers um, to stabilize the price of oil. Because the game of chicken and you know, maybe Russian roulette, dare I say, uh, that went on three months earlier was you know, really going into COVID. I should say right going into COVID was really what, what threw uh, an enormous uh, weight on top of already terrible fundamentals in the sector. So uh, the dynamic for for Russia and and OPEC, uh, I think, still remains extremely important uh, and where they are a source of of energy consistency for the rest of the world. You know, that's something that they still want to be. And and through all the difficult periods in Russia's history, they've tried to establish that they are a a provider of energy at last resort and that they want to be in that position, whether, you know, the rest of the world wants that at this point or not. It's another story. But it's around oil. Um, As an emerging market, Russia's really an insignificant market. It's about a 5 percent weighting or less in the MSCI EM. Um, But I think the diplomatic story today is an important one, very important for our country. And obviously, Guy, Eamon was talking a little bit there about this cybersecurity discussions that went on. Anything that was said today make you look at some of these cybersecurity stocks a little bit more closely with a potential threat or a uh, less of a threat? Although I'm not sure we really got that message today. Yeah, I actually think the threat has been heightened by by today, believe it or not. I mean, I can Mm -hmm. I can say, you know, there know, maybe in terms of Russia, U.S. cyber, but there are a lot of actors that can sort of insert themselves and, and create tension between the two countries. And, you know, I'm pointing right at China on that one. So this has not gone away. It will only get worse. And you just look at the way the stocks traded for proof positive. I mean, Zscaler has had a tremendous couple of weeks. Tim mentions CrowdStrike a lot. That stock's been on fire. Um, Palo Alto Networks. And I'll throw another one in there. It's sort of second derivative, but I think Palantir is a big winner today in terms of their relationship with the government and what they do in big data. So all those names, I think, will continue to work. And I think that, you know, although the rhetoric might have gone down, I think the threat has gotten gotten elevated. Makes sense to me. Obviously, cybersecurity is an area that's only going to become more intense as technology uh, gets more intense over the years right along with it. We're just getting started here on Fast Money tonight, though. Here's what's coming up next. Buckle up. GM's upping its spending on electric vehicles. So, is this the car maker to plug into? Plus, all aboard. We're setting sails on the cruise lines and some other travel stocks. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of General Motors accelerating today. The automaker announcing plans to spend another $8 billion on its EV ambitions. Let's get over to Phil Abo with the details tonight. Hi, Phil. Courtney, this is the third time that we've heard from General Motors in the last year and a half where they have said, hey, this is how much money we're going to be spending developing electric and autonomous vehicles through 2025. And look at how the spending has increased. Right before the pandemic, they said, look, we're going to spend $20 billion through 25. They upped it to $27 billion in November of last year. And now you see they've increased it once again to $35 billion. One of the key points in their extra $8 billion that they're going to be spending, the development of Two new battery plants, so they're going to have four here. And here's the reason why. U.S. EV sales are expected to accelerate to more than a million vehicles for the industry by 2025. And General Motors expects to be a big part of that. Mary Barrow, when we talked with her earlier this morning, said those battery plants, those four plants, are a key part of meeting demand. I have confidence that with uh, these four battery plants that we'll, we'll have by the end of 2025, we will have the capability to, um, to make sure we're able to deliver uh, on those EVs. And our, our goal um, and our commitment to continue to work to be number one in EVs in, in the United States and then in other markets around the world. In terms of global sales of electric vehicles, I get this question a lot. Where does GM rank? Well, They are technically right now number three. Those numbers are a little off there. It should be Tesla number one at 456,000 sold last year. VW is number two at 227. And number three is Volkswagen, or is GM, excuse me, at 214,000 vehicles sold. By the way, GM expects to sell one million vehicles, electric vehicles, annually by 2025. But it's all of the automakers, whether or not they're making big commitments like General Motors or smaller commitments that they really haven't outlined, like Stellantis, parent of Jeep and Ram, they are also benefiting. And that's because the EV planned spending, Courtney, get your ready for this, $330 billion. That's how much has been committed by the industry to be spent by 2025. That's an increase of 40 percent in the last year. That is a really eye-popping number. Phil, what about the semiconductor chip shortage and how that plays into higher expenses for a company like GM going forward for the development of electric vehicles? Well, the chip shortage is more of an acute near-term issue, and they are doing a better job than most other automakers in managing that. And proof of that came today when they raised their guidance for the first half of this year. They now expect to make between 8.5 and 9.5 billion dollars There was a point earlier this year when people said, look, we expect them to do a little bit better than uh, than, you know, five and a half to six billion dollars in the first half of this year. No, eight and a half to nine and a half billion, far better than what many people were expecting. And that's because they have managed the chip crisis. And of course, trucks and SUVs, record demand, record pricing. That's factoring into GM doing really well right now. So, Phil, when you look at how much money Ford is putting into the the Bronco and it's not an EV, does that make you think that they're they're taking their eyes off of where the puck is going when uh, GM is putting so? Yeah, explain that to me. No, because I think the Bronco, when they said we need to make the Bronco, they looked at their product portfolio over, you know, a couple of years ago and they said, where are we lacking? Where is Ford lacking? And if you look at that, that lineup a couple of years ago, it was clearly lacking 
in SUVs. The Wrangler was killing everybody. And they said, why not bring back the Bronco? You got great brand recognition. You have a product that you really haven't had in that, that segment. Let's bring it back. And you're seeing already strong demand for the Bronco. I wouldn't be surprised if we see an electric version of the Bronco at some point over the next couple of years. I think the Bronco is one element of Ford saying, you've got to take care of your customers right now who want the internal combustion engine vehicle, who are not going to wait for an electric vehicle Mm -hmm. while planning for the future with EVs. Thank you very much, Phil. Let's trade this one quickly. BK, you buying GM? You want to go with Ford or Tesla? If you want to play EV, where do you go? So I think, if, I mean, listen, what you need for batteries and EV is a ton of rare earths. And all okay. the rare earths right now come from China. So eventually that's going to have to come to the U.S. And there's really only one way to play it out there, which is Mountain Pass MP. So I think you don't have to bet on whether GM or Ford or the Bronco or not. By the way, that Bronco is amazing looking. But you don't have to bet on whether or not those are going to win. You just have to bet on the picks and shovels or the parts of it. And I think it's rare earths. Okay, rare earths instead of one of the automakers, BK. Coming up, a DOJ crackdown sending shares of two major insurance companies tumbling after hours. We'll break down the details straight ahead. Plus, we're trading the transports, the CEO of UPS, speaking exclusively with CNBC. Just wait until you hear what she said keeps her up at night. The details, the trade, when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money, a big deal in the insurance industry hitting a major roadblock, sending shares of Aon and Willis Towers Watson dropping at the end of the day. Contessa Brewer has the details for us. Hi, Contessa. Hi, Courtney. Yeah, the Justice Department filed an antitrust lawsuit to block a $30 billion merger between the world's second and third largest insurance brokers, Aon and Willis Towers Watson. It would make them the number one insurance broker. Importantly, not just brokers, though. They're consultants and crafters of uh, and administrators of big employer pension plans and retiree health exchanges with 60% and 95% market share for those services. In a call late this afternoon, federal prosecutors said internal emails at Aon self-identified as an an oligopoly and said it would have much more leverage when this Willis deal closes. Justice lawyers say the two companies had agreed that they would divest some operations, but called it inadequate to protect American consumers. And of course, so many American businesses rely on these particular services. The negotiations apparently were ineffective. Prosecutors say they are ready to litigate. The merger deal was announced March of last year. Aon stock up 15% year-to-date. Willis Towers, Watson up 12%. This news, as you can see, driving those shares lower. I do want to point out Willis Towers, Watson shares seem to be rebounding somewhat in extended trading as well, Court. Hmm. Thank you very much, Contessa. BK, I want you to help us trade this one. It seems like kind of a given after hearing those market yeah. shares from Contessa that this one wouldn't get through. Yeah, and, and also, listen, they, they've got issues over in the EU as well. So this is not the only play, the only uh, front line on their battle here. Um, and I'm a little bit surprised that the talks broke down because you did have them, both companies, agree to divest uh, certain, certain aspects of their company to get the deal together. 
Uh, that being said, I wouldn't touch either of these. I think you're, if they decide to fight it, it's going to be a long litigation. And like I said, there's another front to this battle, which is in the EU. Um, and I'm not sure that you can really short it because now you've got everybody who is involved in the deal has got to unwind positions and whatnot. So, you know, if you're looking at these saying, hey, maybe they're a bargain because they're cheaper than they were yesterday, I would say that's probably not the case and just stay away. So, Guy, what do you think, a bargain or too complicated to play? Well, I can speak intelligently about a few things. This isn't one of them. But what I'll tell you is it gives us an opportunity to talk about insurers. And you look at Prudential, for example, it's been on fire. MetLife just traded through the highs we saw in October 2007, going back 14 years, you know, above 61. These stocks, if you think rates are going higher like I do, I think you stay with these names. Again, can't speak to the other two names that Contessa mentioned, but you look at Met, in my opinion, as long as it holds above 61 and if you think rates are going higher, I think these stocks will go higher as well. Guy's right. I mean, these stocks, first of all, they've been on, on a run. I, I get a little worried about some of the threats that I think face them. I, I think there's credit threats out there. I think there are still, you know, COVID dynamics and threats for life insurers and whatnot. Still some unknowns there. Uh, I think there are overall some interest rate threats. And, and so they've had such a good run. Uh, and, and frankly, I do think that there's, there's social pressure on insurance companies. I mean, they are crushing people with premiums. <laughs> um, in case you're listening. Um, but I, I, I do think that the story, which was uh, also part of the financial story, part of the uh, really evaluation construct, you're starting to see some of these folks re-rate pricing power. Uh, I think you're running into uh, some headwinds after what's been a sweet spot. I saw some premium prices myself when we were doing some research. I was a little shocked, actually, at yeah. some of those. Well, coming up, the delivery wars are heating up. The head of UPS weighing in on rising competition. We've got the exclusive details next. Plus, we're setting sail on some travel stocks as the country reopens. Is it time to book your ticket on this trade? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money back right after this. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of UPS tumbling today. The stock is now down more than 7% in a month. We heard from UPS CEO Carol Tomei at CNBC's Global Evolve Summit today. Here's what she said is keeping her up at night. There are many sleepless nights because our competitors are changing, our customers are changing, and the rate of change is accelerating. So it's like, are we looking around corners? Are we fast enough? Are we leaning into the customer experience that our customers want? You know, we've declared 16 customer journeys to really improve the customer experience end-to-end from the shipper all the way to the recipient. We're making some very good progress here, but are we moving fast enough? You know, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of that, that we're not moving fast enough. Some nice honesty from Carol Tomei. You can see our full interview with her and all of our big interviews from CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on demand. Head to cnbcevents.com slash evolve. But let's trade UPS. Steve, what do you make of the shippers? If we're talking about supply chain crunches, I know that's sort of at a different level. But if you want to play delivery, do you want to play a UPS? Do you want to play a FedEx? Do you want to play Amazon? So UPS is up 19% year to date. FedEx has lagged UPS. It's up 13% year to date. She is right. You don't know. There are plenty of competition. You don't know where the competition is coming from. I own WRK, which is Westrock. It's a paper and container company. So 
Either way you go, whoever wins, there's more packages. We could all agree upon that. So I'm playing it from a different way because I don't know how this is going to shake out, nor does she. So how would I know? And BK, you brought us the rare earth trade when I asked you if you want to play electric vehicles. So do you have sort of a backdoor way to, to trade delivery and transports here, too? No, I mean, these are tough. I think probably what you want to do is actually, I, I agree with Stephen, you stay away from FedEx and you stay away from UPS because that area is in the middle of flocks. But I think you take a look at the railroads. As you see more domestic type of, uh, type of deliveries happening, more domestic production happening, the railroads are probably the place to be because there really isn't any competition. It's not like you're going to build another railroad anytime soon. So that is how I would play kind of the reshoring effect of the supply chain. You know, Ms. Tomei talked about seeing around the corners. I don't know if we have any footage of Guy Adami working for UPS. But, and, I mean, I think there's some reasons why he's no longer with the firm. And, and uh, now, look, UPS has, I think, done an amazing job of showing capacity discipline. They have pricing power. Uh, and I think, it, you know, I don't think we're late cycle. If you were late cycle, I think you'd be staying away from the transports. If you look at the IYT, it's actually dipped below the 50. I, I think this is an opportunity to pick this up. And again, those Q1 numbers, the stock spiked. It's given some back. Uh, I think you take a look. Guy, I can't let you go. You got to get yeah, the guy, last I mean, word in on this one. Brown isn't my color either, if that's no, your reason. Tim- <laughs> Tim is right. I did work at UPS for a day, and I'm the only employee in the history of the firm to get employee of the month having been there one day. It's something <laughs> I'm extraordinarily proud of, number one. Bravo. Number two, I, I would actually, I think you could buy FedEx here. You know, you throw a 20 multiple on the $18 they're going to earn. You're talking about a stock that he's trading 360. I think they report on June 24th. All right, we're going to pay attention to that on June 24th. Coming up, we're checking in on the travel trade, what we spotted in the options market today that could point to smooth sailing for one of the big cruise lines. We'll break down that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Centene. Watch that full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. The travel industry is ready to rock. That's the big message today from some of the industry's top players. At least Seema Modi has the details. Hi, Seema. Hey, Courtney. We spoke with the Hyatt CEO and the CEO of Carnival about the state of the travel industry. And what's clear is that the recovery is is here, but it's still highly confined to beaches and leisure destinations. Now, that's given the hotel's pricing power in markets like Florida and Hawaii. It's also helped Hyatt's portfolio of resorts outperform. We're running something like 30% above uh, where we were in 2019 for our U.S. resorts, for example, over the July 4th, the two-week period that sort of uh, spans July 4th. Uh, So really significant improvement. Hyatt is betting that a return in the business traveler will be this fall. And that matters, right? Because hotels pre-COVID made about 40 to 50 percent of their revenue from the corporate traveler. On to the cruise lines where the fate of this industry lies in the hand of this lawsuit between the CDC and the state of Florida, where the governor there, Ron DeSantis, is warning the cruise lines that if they mandate the vaccine, they will be subject to a hefty fine. We're talking $5,000 per passenger, which with 200 passengers, that's about a million dollars. Here's what Carnival CEO Arnold Donald told me about whether he's willing to pay that fine. Everyone is trying to do what they believe is the right thing. So you will and pay so the 5000 working together, we fine. think we, we can get there. Yeah. You think you'll pay the fine then? If you have to pay it, you'll pay it. You just no, want your I, guests I don't to think come back. We'll, 
I'm not anticipating we'll ever have to pay a fine. I'm confident we'll work stuff out with, with um, the governor and with CDC. A ruling from the judge in Tampa is expected any day now. Wall Street will be watching that uh, event very closely. Remember, Florida made up about 60% of all sailings pre-COVID. So in order for the cruise lines to return to pre-COVID levels, they need Florida to work. They need to get their ships back to sea. In the meantime, they are prioritizing other markets. Carnival's first sailing will be out of Galveston, Texas this July. That's the Carnival Vista, among other sailings out of Seattle to Alaska. Courtney? Thank you very much, Seema. Covered a lot of ground there. Let's bring in Tony Zhang, who spotted some major bullish activity on Carnival Cruise Lines today in the options market. Tony, what did you see here? Right, Courtney. We had a pretty strong day here for travel stocks, and Carnival Cruise traded fairly actively. 137,000 contracts traded today on Carnival. And today we saw an actually fairly plain vanilla earnings bet here for Carnival, which, which reports here in about two weeks or so, where a trader bought about 1,200 contracts of the July $30 call options, paying about $1.32 on average for these calls. So this is a, a strategy with a break-even price of $31.32, which is about 7% higher from where the, where the stock closed today. But this is a strategy that only risks 4.5% if this stock was to decline here on earnings here in a couple of weeks. So I think this is a great example of how investors can take advantage of upside exposure going into an earnings event while risking only 4.5% because this is a stock that has been very choppy. There is a risk that we're going to likely see another revenue or perhaps earnings miss to the downside. Tony, thank you very much. Guy, I want to trade this with you very quickly. What do you make of these travel stocks? Any of them looking attractive to you here? Well, Tony, seeing something there, you got an upgrade by Wolf Research, I think, in Carnival and Norwegian, maybe one other name. It's completely, you know, if you look at the CCL, for example, nowhere near the highs we saw in January of 2020. But, you know, you get some decent news and earnings and maybe it's worth the play. So I like what Tony just said. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, your final trades. Welcome back to Fast. Check out shares of AMC pulling back today, but managing to close above $55 a share. We have a big show coming your way tomorrow. We're diving into the blockbuster action in AMC, what's driving the trade, what's at stake, and what's really playing out under the surface of this market. Be sure to catch our Fast Money special tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time. But it's now time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn. Guys, starting with you. Palantir, Courtney. BK. Uh, for me, it's CME. Play the volatility in all the asset classes. Mr. Seymour. Court oil hit intraday, actually almost two and a half year highs before pulling back with a big dollar. Chevron. Okay, and Mr. Grasso. Everybody's worried about rates going higher. I don't see them going higher immediately. So people, are gonna, too. people are going to search for something. XLP. <laughs> XLP. Thanks for watching Fast Money. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.